So if you've been with us in our study on Sunday morning of Luke's gospel in chapter 18, verse 35, all the way to verse 27 that we left off last week of chapter 19, Jesus has been traveling through the Jordan Valley. He's been traveling through Jericho, a thousand feet below sea level. It's the lowest point on the face of the earth. It is springtime. People are, you know, traveling. The roads are jammed with travelers coming from all over Israel, all over the known world to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And there in Jericho, uh, they would begin that ascent to 2,500 feet above sea level in a distance of only about 20 miles. And while Jesus was passing through Jericho, we saw that he would bring healing to a man who was blind, his name being Bartimaeus. And Mark's gospel tells us there's a great multitude that is with Jesus right now. And when they saw that miracle, they began to glorify God, and they marveled at the healing that took place. Jesus, as he's traveling through Jericho, there's a chief tax collector, that famous story of Zacchaeus, who wanted to see who Jesus is. He was short of stature. He couldn't see past the crowd, so he ran ahead of the crowd. He climbed up into a sycamore tree, and Jesus would stop right underneath him. And as we read that story, we think, you know, there's Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, but really... Jesus was seeking him. Because in verse 10, he said, I came to seek. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. I, you know, given his mission once again, that I came to seek and save that which is lost. That's you, Zacchaeus. And he would address Zacchaeus and say that, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for I must come to your house. And Zacchaeus welcomed him. And Jesus would go over and have dinner with him and converse with him. And he ended up getting saved. Salvation has come to his house, Jesus said. And here's the thing for all of us to remember, that if you're here and you're not saved, giving your heart to Jesus Christ, he is knocking on the door of your heart, as Revelation chapter 3 says. And as you open up your heart, he says, I will come in and dine with you and you with him. He wants to save you, forgive you, but also believer, know this, that every day he knocks on the door of our heart, continually knocking, desiring to have fellowship with you and closeness with you. He desires to share with you as you read the word and speak to you in that still small voice. And so here's all this happening and, and the people are excited. And as he's getting ready to make his way out of the Jordan uh, Valley, out of Jericho, up to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, the multitude that is with him, as we read in verse 11, there is this excitement within the people. They are expecting him to usher in the, in the kingdom of God immediately. So Jesus would, at that time, would give the parable to Minas as we looked at that parable last time. Again, to remind us that the Lord is going to come back. And he told that parable of a nobleman that went away to a far country to receive a kingdom to himself, and he returned. He had entrusted to his servants uh, each a mina. And they were to give an account of what was given to them and to know that our king is going to come back, having received the kingdom. He will establish the kingdom of God. And when he does, that he's going to come back in great power and glory this time. And we are going to give an account of what we have done and the things that have been entrusted to us. So keep this all in mind as we read the text here, as we begin to look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, that, you know, the crowds are expecting that he's going to usher in the kingdom of God right now, and they are going to receive him publicly for the moment. 
to receive him as Messiah. Because before the week is over, we know that he's going to be on a cross. It won't be long from this time that they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that the multitudes are going to cry out, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. So Jesus saying that parable, saying that I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. And in the meantime, as servants of Jesus Christ, you are to occupy or do business till he returns. Whether he returns for the church in the rapture of the church for his bride or whether he comes for us individually, we are to occupy till he comes. In other words, I just want to remind us at this point in our study to be a good steward of giving and sharing and living the gospel. That's what the mina represent. Each servant was given the same amount, one manna, and then as they would invest in the kingdom, doing the business of the king, he would return and they gave an account. And those who invested in the kingdom, he said, well done. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So when we look at those parables, remember this, the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 that speaks of our gifts and our abilities, opportunities to serve the Lord, whether we're talking about the parable of the unjust steward, how we handle our money, whether it's talking about whatever that the Lord has entrusted to us, remember that it belongs to him, that what has been entrusted to us belongs to the master, belongs to the king, and we're to be good stewards of it, And when he comes for us, when he returns for us, that know this, that we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, not to be judged for our sins, but we will give an account of what we have done with the things entrusted to us, and we will be rewarded for what we have done for Christ. And remember this, that all the things of the world are going to go away. But what we have done for Christ, that's what's going to last. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and also Romans chapter 14 talks about how we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling them, occupy till I come. But in the meantime, we see that here they're going up, ascending to Jerusalem. The crowds, there's great anticipation. The crowds are stirring. There's excitement, expectation that he's going to usher in the kingdom immediately. And instead, as we look at this, here the people, even though they're cheering, religious leaders, we're going to see them complaining. Jesus is going to be weeping over Jerusalem as he makes his way into the city. But before that, in verse 29, we read that, And it came to pass that when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. We don't know which two disciples he sent. The other Gospels don't tell us. But here, as he makes that climb from the Jordan Valley, 20 miles, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, only about two miles away from Jerusalem, on the east slope of the Mount of Olives is these two villages. Uh, They are Bethpage and Bethany. Now, Bethany may ring a bell with you because it was also, according to John chapter 11, called the city of Mary. And in Bethany was a very special family to Jesus that lived there, and that was Mary and Martha, uh, Mary's sister, and then their brother Lazarus. And it was just a couple weeks before this event that we're reading about in Luke chapter 19 that he would come to Bethany as he was called by Mary and Martha. You know, our brother is sick. And when Jesus got there, he had been already dead for four days in the tomb. And Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. 
And when that happened, what took place was that many people began to believe in Jesus. And what happened as well is the religious leaders got word of it that Lazarus is alive. And the religious leaders are so taken back by that. Hey, all these people are beginning to believe in Jesus. They're beginning to look to him. That's why there's a great multitude that is around him at this time. And they said, we must put him to death because we're going to lose our authority and Rome's going to step in and it's going to be bad news for all of us. So we get that all from John chapter 11 as we read about Lazarus coming back from the dead. And also the religious leaders were so determined at this point to put Jesus to death, but also they wanted to put Lazarus to death as well because he's alive. And the sect of the religious leaders were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So Lazarus walking around being raised from the dead is bad theology for them. So they are determined to put him to death as well. So all this has taken place, and we know that the day before this event that we're reading about, this has taken place on Palm Sunday, what is called Palm Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, a week from Palm Sunday, the tomb's going to be empty. But the day before this event, we know that on that Sabbath, before he comes into Jerusalem, that John chapter 12 tells us that Jesus is back in Bethany. And it was Mary, you recall the story, that came to him with that box of, of uh, costly spikener, that uh, very expensive ointment that she would break the box and she would anoint his feet. And it was Judas that would say, hey, that's a waste of money. We could have sold that for nearly a year's wages and given it to the poor. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She's anointing me for my burial. So that takes place before this time here that we just read about as he's passing through Bethpage and Bethany. And he then comes to the mountain called Olivet. He would send two of his disciples. Let's read on in verse 30 saying, Go into the village, this is the first day of the week, opposite you, where you will enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. And, but as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him, in verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So all four Gospels record this event called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which is interesting because the true triumphal entry isn't really until Revelation chapter 19 when he's going to come in a second return in great power and glory, and we're going to return with him when he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. But it is called that, the triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. 
Now, if you've been with us in our study of Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verse 51, remember that it tells us that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And now he has come to this week of the feast of Passover. And as we've already touched on with the people, here they are, the disciples laying their clothes on the road. The, the crowds begin to do that. There's going to be the waving of the palm branches, as the other gospels tell us that. that um, and that's thus the reason Palm Sunday. But the crowd is saying, and they're thinking, this is it. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He is going to usher in the kingdom, verse 11. He's going to do it now. He's going to throw off the Roman yoke and tyranny that is against us. And we are going to see great power and glory right now as he ushers in the kingdom. And as we have discussed, they were looking for that political, national, material Messiah. And that is so far from what is going to unfold later on in the week when he will be arrested. He will be bound up. He will go through a series of six trials that will lead him to Calvary. The multitudes will cry out at that time, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And you recall in the previous chapter, in the last six months, ever since Caesarea Philippi, he's been telling his disciples that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and elders. In the last chapter, he says, I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be mocked and beaten and spit upon and scourged. But after my death, I'm going to rise again on the third day. And it says that the disciples understood none of these things. It was hidden from them. They didn't understand heaven's great plan of redemption that is going to be provided again by the next Sunday when they find the tomb is empty. This is the center of God's plan and will. And Peter would later on, as he wrote in his epistle, that we have been redeemed by his precious blood, foreordained before the foundation of the world. He is making his triumphal entry not to usher in the kingdom, but to hang on a cross. And the crowds are thinking, boy, are the Romans going to get theirs. Here comes the judgment. He's going to display great power and judgment. They're waving the palm branches. Again, there's a historic you know, reference to that, to where 200 years before this event here in Luke chapter 19, there was a Syrian king that came into Jerusalem. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a brutal, terrible, cruel ruler that came in. And history tells us he killed many Jews. He would kill some of the priests. He took a pig and he slaughtered a pig in the temple in the Holy of Holies and smeared the blood all over, desecrating the temple. Pigs were seen as unclean and, and to the Jewish culture and according to the law that they were following. And what Antiochus Epiphanes did, and the Jews would call him Antiochus Epinanes. It was a play on words. He's Antiochus the madman. And what he did is he tried to do away with Judaism and the practices and, and the law and try to replace it with a bunch of paganism and Greek culture and all of this. Well, what happened was there's this Jewish man, uh, Judas Maccabee, that rose up and began to lead a revolt against Antiochus and his soldiers. And his brothers joined in, and it grew. And after nine years of struggle, they would drive out Antiochus and Assyrian soldiers 
And then what they did when they were driven out is the people climbed the palm trees and cut down the palm branches and began to wave them. It was a symbol that we are free from political, you know, military oppression. And they went in and they cleansed the temple. They cleaned it all up. They relit the menorah. That's where they celebrated the Feast of Lights that you read about in John's Gospel and the Jews celebrated today, which is called Hanukkah. So there's a whole story behind that that we don't have time to go into. And they celebrate, of course, Hanukkah during our Christmas time. So that's why they're waving the palm branches. They're saying, hey, he's going to usher in the kingdom. And he is going to, to bring an end to the Roman authority over us and the suppression and, and the Roman yoke that has been ruling over us. And here it comes. And we know that Jesus here is orchestrating this event. You see, previous to this, we have read and we have watched him. Whenever that he did a healing, oftentimes, or even raised the dead, he would say to them, don't say anything. And oftentimes they would go out and they would say something. Or it would be found out the miracle that he did. It got so much to where the crowds were so huge up in the Galilee region that after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, it tells us that they came and they were going to take him by force to be their king. Hey, he has healed us of every kind of sickness and disease. He's even raised the dead. He's cleansed the leopard. He's opened the eyes of the blind. And he has freed the demoniacs. And he has fed us. We'll never be sick again. Uh, we will be raised from the dead. If we die, we'll never go hungry again. We're going to force him to be our king. And Jesus dismissed the crowds, it says in John chapter 6. It was later on after that, that up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus is there transfigured. And we read about that. He's talking with Elijah and Moses. And Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of that event. And they must have thought, this is it. Because Malachi, the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, said that Elijah is going to come first. He's going to come right before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is it. There's Elijah up on the mountain. And then Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone the vision that you saw until I've risen from the grave. Now, of course, Peter would then write about it in 2 Peter right before he's put to death at the end of his life. Jesus, in other words, had put off this public declaration or recognition of the Messiah until this day. So what is different about this day? And I think it's very important for us to see this here. In all four Gospels, in Matthew and Mark again, they're crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke says, they cried out as we read, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. John's Gospel, Blessed is the king of Israel. So in all four Gospels, it gives clear indication that they are ascribing him to the title of Messiah. They are quoting from Psalm 118, and the religious leaders know that. And that's why they're saying, rebuke your disciples. This is blasphemy. Tell them to be silent is what we read in another gospel. But let me read it to you in Psalm 118, that messianic psalm that reads in verse 23, that this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is interesting about this messianic psalm that speaks of coming Messiah, that we also know that verse 22, the verse before I just read to you, says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that probably sounds familiar to a lot of you because it was Peter that would quote that to the religious leaders when in the book of Acts, when the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem and onward, that people are getting saved in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin council, presided over by the high priest, would arrest the apostles, bring them before the council, and said, stop preaching the name of Jesus. You've, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And not to get sidetracked, but it just would be wonderful if that was said of us here at Calvary Chapel Greeley, that you guys have filled Greeley, you have filled Weld County, northern Colorado with the gospel. To the people that you work with and alongside of in your neighborhood, you know, in this community, as the radio program goes forth, we want to fill this area, our neighborhoods, our workplace, with the name of Jesus, with the gospel message, don't we? You need to quit doing that, they said. And Peter said, no, we're not going to do that. We can't help but, but talk about the things we've seen and heard. And if it's a choice between obeying man and obeying the Lord, we're going to obey the Lord, and we're going to take the gospel out to all the world. So as Peter was rebuking those religious leaders, he said, you guys have rejected him. And he would quote from Psalm 118 that you uh, have rejected the chief cornerstone, the builders. You've rejected him. So here is all this activity is going on. You've got to picture the scene. And, and Jesus says, if they are silent, the very rocks are going to cry out. The city is swelling with people coming to celebrate Passover. Matthew tells us that, that the whole city was moved. It's the Greek word uh, seismos, where we get our English word seismic. It means to be shaken like an earthquake. And the people are cheering. They're waving the palm branches. They're, they're praising God. They're yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And there's great excitement. You know, the Romans, they're laughing. I mean, can you imagine the Roman soldiers that are there? This is your conquering Messiah? The one that's riding on the, the foal, a colt, a, a baby donkey with the mother out in front. If he was really a conquering Messiah, then he would be on a stallion. And he would come in in, in great grandeur and glory, and he would have an army with him. So they're thinking, this, this is a joke. But Jesus, his response is, is that he's weeping. He is crying over the city of Jerusalem. For the people, let's read that in, in verse 41, as we see that uh, as he drew near the city, it tells us that he wept over it, saying, if you had known, verse 42, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So no one really understands what's going on. Jesus does. That's why he's weeping, because he does know that they're going to reject him in a few days. The disciples, they don't understand fully what's going on. 
They're still arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who gets to sit on your left and who gets to sit on your right. The religious leaders don't get it. They're saying, be silent. This is blasphemy. The Romans don't understand, obviously. The people don't understand because they're expecting the sky to open up and a whole host of angelic beings come and wipe out Rome. There is this great multitude that has followed Jesus up the mountains of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And as they're doing that, they would be singing the songs of ascents, if I, as I've told you. As we went through, you know, these psalms when we did our recent study in the book of Psalms, that is, in Psalm 120 to 134, the people are singing these, these songs of ascent. That's why up to Jerusalem, ascending up to Jerusalem, and part of the songs of ascent would be in Psalm 132, verse 13. Let me read it to you. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And the psalm goes on to say that this is my resting place, says the Lord forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. And there I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, speaking of the Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. This is it. It's going to happen. Jesus is weeping because he knows he's going to be rejected. The rest of the people, they don't understand it all. Jerusalem's population would swell at this time. And I'll give historical reference to it next time as he comes in and he's going to cleanse the temple. The city is packed out with people. And it is historians that suggest that Jerusalem would grow the population to 2 million people at this time. So picture it. You guys remember when the Broncos won the Super Bowl last time? And they said there was a million people there that came to the parade, to, you, know, where, you know, waving and cheering and all this. Can you imagine at this time, here's the city, 2 million people are going to be in the city. And there's a great multitude that has followed Jesus up the hill to Jerusalem. They are with him as he's making his descent down the Mount of Olives on the, the colt of full of a donkey. As we see, he would pass through the Garden of Gethsemane. He would go into the Kidron Valley, probably swing around to the southern entrance that they excavated recently where most of the pilgrims would come. And it says also in John's gospel that the people came and met him. In other words, that the people that were already there in Jerusalem, this another great multitude comes out. This is a happening scene. And they're waving the palm branches and laying their clothes on the road. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. King of Israel, save now. Usher in the kingdom. But they don't understand. I was kind of making a little joke on Wednesday night talking about what we're going to go over. I said the only one that really understood was the donkey here. He understands what's going on. But, but I think that as we consider this, that as we look at this, that we can actually learn from this little donkey. There are some lessons for us that I think that are applicable to us in, in our lives. You see, this donkey here... It's interesting that Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, also in Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, the law of the firstborn was given that, I'll read it to you, but every firstborn, the Lord says, of a donkey shall redeem with a lamb. 
And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. Interesting. So when a donkey had a baby donkey, that firstborn had to be paid for by the blood of a lamb. If you did not do it, then judgment. You would break its neck. So that male donkey had to be redeemed by the killing of a lamb. Jesus here fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt. It's a male, the foal of a donkey. Picture the scene here. Now, in Matthew's gospel, the disciples were told, you're going to see a donkey with its foal, with the colt. Bring them to me. So the picture here is that, and there's all kinds of papers written on it and debates on it, and all of this was Jesus on the mother, you know, riding the donkey, and the foal was being pulled behind them, or was the mother leading them, or is Jesus sitting on one and had his legs on the others? All kinds of speculations. I think that Zechariah chapter 9 and Luke here kind of clears it up, that you are riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, on the baby donkey. And here in Luke, it says they put him on the colt is what they did. So he's riding this baby donkey that is out front. And as you read about how it's interesting that it's found in the Old Testament that the firstborn of a male donkey had to be redeemed by a lamb. But what that reminds me is this. That Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, what they didn't understand, to redeem you and I the precious Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God that would come and shed His blood for us because we needed to be redeemed. And He was coming to take care of the greatest need that any man or any woman has, and that is to be forgiven of sin. And even as we sang here, I pray that that well-known hymn, what has washed away my sin, the blood of Jesus, how precious is the blood of Jesus, that that would never lose impact with you and me, that we have been redeemed. Jesus went to the cross for us, for you individually. He could have ushered in the kingdom at that time. He really could have. All he had to do is speak. And 12 legions of angels is what he told Peter could come down. He could have wiped out all of Jerusalem. He could have wiped out the world and started all over again. But why didn't he? Because of you. Because he loves you and he came to redeem you to give you life. He is your salvation. There is none other. And you see, it wasn't really the nails that kept Jesus up on that cross. It was his love for you. And he was thinking about you as he made his way up to that place of execution because he wants you to spend eternity with him, to be a part of his kingdom, to be forgiven of sin, the greatest need that we have, because sin has separated us from him. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and for me. So we needed to be redeemed. Second of all, what we learned from this little donkey. Second of all, is that not only was us needing to be redeemed, but this donkey had to be released. He was tied up. He was alive. He was in bondage, tied up. Jesus said, loose him and bring him to me. I have been redeemed. You have been redeemed, but we also need to be released. We need to be freed up. It's like Lazarus when Jesus said, come forth, Lazarus. And then he turned to the people and he said, hey, take the grave clothes off of them. 
unwind those linen strips that are around him, free him, loose him. And you see, there's all kinds of things that can have us tied up in bondage. And he has redeemed us from the penalty of sin, but he wants to free us from the power of sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts. He wants to free you. We celebrate our freedom this week, don't we? The birth of our nation. We celebrate the freedoms that we have. But the greatest freedom is to be loosed from sin, to be free from the penalty of sin, and then to be loosed from the bondage of sin in the world. And if you're in bondage to something this morning, call upon him. You look to him. You walk in the spirit. And as you abide in him and in his love, his word, you put away the things of the world as you worship him, keep your focus on him, stay close to him, you'll find yourself being released. The things that can hold a grip on our hearts and tie us up and hold us in bondage. Thirdly, this little donkey was submitted. In other words, we know from the Gospels that this donkey had never been ridden before, but this donkey was submitted to Jesus riding him. He wasn't bucking all the way down the Mount of Olives with Jesus on him. Christians, I just want to say this, because I talk to a whole lot of people. There's too many Christians that are bucking what the Word of God has to say for their lives and how to live. And what he says that we are to do. I don't want you writing me, pastor, giving me these verses. I don't want Jesus writing me. I want to do my own thing. And you end up missing out. And you see, he didn't redeem you so you can go and live after the world and do your own thing. He has redeemed you so he has given you life, but he desires to give you life abundantly. He didn't free us so we can live after the world and live in our own way and do our own thing. So we are to be submitted to him. And if you want to really experience that life abundantly, then walk in obedience to him. And know that he desires to bless you as you do that. And he's given you the power through the Holy Spirit to do that as you just submit to him and look to him and call out to him. But the fourth thing that I see here, and this is important, I want to draw attention here to verse 31, that as we see that, that Jesus remembered the instructions he gave to those two disciples, and if anyone asks you why you're loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. He has redeemed us. He desires to release us. He wants us to be submitted to him. And then fourthly, what we learn from this little donkey is that he wants to use us. He has need of you. And that's what he says to you, all of us, this morning. This is really a famous donkey. It's going to be known for all eternity, recorded in God's word. But prophesied 500 years before this event even happened by the prophet Zechariah. And this little donkey had a special calling, and that was to what? To lift Jesus up before the multitude. And that's the calling that he has for you. To lift Jesus up to the people that are around you. That you may be one. That you can tell people about his love and provision that he's made for you. Listen, you have a calling. You know the truth. You've been given a mina. Lift Jesus up. Tell people about him. Reflect the, the reality of Jesus and the way that you live. 
People shouldn't be looking at us and saying, you're a Christian, you live just like the world. You're no different than anybody else. Why should I become a Christian? You lift Jesus up in your life. And what you say to them, the gospel, how you live the gospel, how you live your life, the countenance of the Lord that's been coming forth from you, the fragrance of the Lord. We've talked all about those things over the last couple of weeks. As it would be Paul that wrote to the Corinthians, you're the fragrance of Christ. To those who are alive, we're to lift people up or lift Jesus up to the people around us in your workplace, in your neighborhood, to your family, to this community. Jesus says, be silent. What do you mean be silent? The very rocks are going to cry out. He's weeping over Jerusalem because you don't know the day of your visitation. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 has been fulfilled. But also next week, we're going to pick up the second part of this. Some more very important implications that we look at this, fulfilling Daniel chapter 9 as well. And then we're going to look and finish the chapter as he cleanses the temple. Very important for us to understand why he did that. But Jesus coming into Jerusalem to die for you and for me. And as we come to the communion table, we hold the elements and we'll hold them. We'll partake of them together. But remember this, that we hold them. It symbolizes that his blood was spilled for the forgiveness of sin, his body broken because of his love for us, great provision of forgiveness. And may we just continue to worship at this time as we come to the table together, to the communion table. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this lesson today. We thank you for this story recorded in all four Gospels that we can just benefit from and be blessed by. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, whether you're listening on live stream or out in the coffee shop or here in the sanctuary or perhaps on the radio, that you're going to listen to this message later, that, that Lord, for those who have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that you would come. He is your salvation. He has made a way. He's made provision. He's done the work. You can't save yourself. A church can't save you. There is forgiveness for those who call upon his name. That all manner of sin is forgiven. Except for rejection of him. He is your salvation. And today is the day of salvation. Will you call upon him? He died for you that you might be forgiven because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ as you put your faith in him. Trust in him for salvation. Call upon him. Surrender to him. Turn to him. You can do that right now. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you as I am a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me. You're alive, speaking to my heart knocking on the door of my heart, and I now open my heart to you, and you promised that you would come in and dine with me and sup with me. I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. I thank you for dying for me, saving me. I want to know you. I want to walk with you, and I want to serve you all the days of my life. Thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer as... Pastor John's going to be up front here to pray with you. We want to bless you. We want to encourage you in any way that we can. If you're listening later, call us at the church. Tell us the decision that you made. But for all of us right now, 
that as we just continue in worship, as the communion elements are handed out, that, Lord, that you would just, just cause our hearts to rejoice, the great provision and work that Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name.